Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. A Living History Production. I'm Peter Hart. And I'm Gary Bain. And together we're Pete and Gary's Military History Podcast. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm here with Peter Hart. Hello. And I'm Gary Bain. And today the podcast is entitled Planning the Somme. So, serious business today. Serious business. And we're going to do a series of podcasts running from now through July uh, and uh, into November, uh, which sort of map out some of the events that happened uh, contemporaneously, as it were, during those months. Brilliant. I'm looking forward to that. It's always it's got, always been a controversial battle, hasn't it? Uh, and and I, I, in some ways, its image was set in the 60s, you know, live sort of public consciousness of lines of men stumbling forward to their futile deaths, cut down in their thousands by mass German machine guns. But the, the casualties are unbelievable, aren't they? I mean, and, and we're not... I mean, people will argue endlessly as to the... odd, But the general figures are over 57, nearly 57,500 casualties on the first day alone. Well, that's just the British casualties. Just the British? Yeah, absolutely. And a great point. There are the French casualties to bear in mind as well. And then of those, something like 19,240 were, uh, were killed. And this has often been seen as the... The, the result of unimaginative uh, generals uh, safe behind their lines in their chateaus, donkeys, and, and they're pilloried. They're, they've been pilloried from all sides, uh, uh, you know. And they're um, still being used by contemporary politicians to this day. As, yeah, the, as the other day, of poor yeah, leadership. Lines said by donkeys uh, appertaining to various issues. Yeah, yeah it's true. Uh, now, we want to make this clear before we start, and I know you particularly felt this, that the, the, the sob is a tragedy, isn't it? It's, it's mass slaughter, Pete, and bottomless suffering. And, and it, it cannot simply be brushed aside by the justification of cold-blooded military necessity. It was necessary, but it was horrific. It was horrific. Now, in some ways, to talk about the plan of the Somme, you've got to go back and look, why, why, are we in, why are we here, if you see? Now, we're not going to do the whole war. But the, the Battle of the Somme is a continental battle. And it's a direct result of the British government abandoning its traditional maritime geopolitical strategy. I might ask you to explain what a geopolitical strategy is when it's at home. Oh, I'm just relieved you didn't ask me to say it. <laughs> in previous European 
conflicts, you know, Napoleonic, uh, Seven Years' War, and any others that I can't remember the names of. That's the level of historical knowledge we've got. Hundred uh, Years' War? No, I don't know. <laughs> Uh, Britain usually sought to stand aside and minimise her involvement in continental land campaigns. Uh, what, 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 what would Britain normally do? Let, let's keep it to the Seven Years' War on Napoleonic, or we will run a strike. Uh, well, Britain's strength was based primarily on the Royal Navy, the senior service. Wow. And the uh, preeminence of a, a maritime empire. And unlike the continental powers, who were forced to raise huge armies able to compete with let's face it, equally powerful countries that surrounded them, the British Isles were just that, Pete. Islands. Islands. And they are unattainable unless the enemy could first comprehensively defeat the Royal Navy. And interesting, if you look at something like Trafalgar, uh, that, that wasn't an all-the-eggs-in-one-basket thing. The, 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 the British had, a, the Royal Navy had about two fleets the size. Uh, it, it's a big undertaking at that time. Now, the... the, the, the British global strategy, which to us is defensive, peace-loving and lovely, can be seen differently. But what are the three principles? Let's, let's, uh, let you go, let's go through them. What's the first one? Well, firstly, the Royal Navy would be maintained in accordance with a two-power standard. You sort of alluded it to it a, a, a little while ago. It must be superior to the strength of the next two naval powers. So it's giving yourself a margin for error as at Trafalgar, if you see. Yeah. Uh, so, secondly, no one country should be allowed to secure domination of Europe, and in particular, the coastline of Belgium and the Netherlands, from which an invasion could be mounted with minimal warning. Yeah, so it's that's just precautionary. Yep. What's wrong with that? Nothing at all, nothing. <laughs> and thirdly, <laughs> thirdly, the, the third one is difficult to defend. What is it, Gary? Well, the British <laughs> Empire was to be defended, and where possible expanded across the globe to provide the resources and markets that fueled the economy. Now, how do you think other countries uh, feel about these uh, eternal and perpetual policies of the British Empire? Well, as you've mentioned, that they, they might have seemed defensive to us, to the British, but they were highly aggressive to other great powers who found themselves constantly balked by the British in attempting to chart their own course to a global empire. Now, the British, we're not going to go through all this, but the British have been drawn into this continental equation. Uh, and in a series of joint staff, after, after the Entente Cordiale became a fact, uh, they'd been dr dr drawn into a set of joint army staff talks with the French. And, and, and the basic principle was that the British Expeditionary Force, BEF, small there it might be, would be... Would, would, the French wanted them. What did Foch say? What did Foch say, Gary? When he was asked how many British soldiers he would he would require, he said one would be sufficient and he'd make sure that he died uh, because that would then mean that more British soldiers would be drawn into the conflict. Now, it was accepted, although very small as you mentioned, that actually the British Expeditionary Force might mark the difference in the coming battle between the mighty French and German armies and ought, therefore, to be deployed on the mainland. 
And the British will say it did make the difference, although uh, the French and Germans are more sceptical about that. But we, we talk a lot about uh, our battles in 1914. And we've got a right to be proud of the BEF, but probably it didn't make that much difference. Yeah, uh, let's face it, a couple of years later, Britain had, in fact, grown to, to be a continental army. It had. By 1916, it had mobilised. And, and, and yes. Now, the, 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 the other thing that the Somme marks is that, is, is of course, uh, we've mentioned this in podcasts before, uh, the the Great Wars trench warfare now, um, and they're not—they're not a new development, are they, Gary? No, but um, <clears throat> what's making the problem really intense for the generals on both sides was the power of modern weapons acting in concert. So th- they'd had trenches before, but not with the sort of weapons. Now, and also things like belts of barbed wire. Yeah, they'd had barbed wire before, but not the sort of barbed wire they were, that, that slowed down the infantry. Uh, and it, what does it do? What? Why? Why is barbed wire so important? Well, it slows down any uh, uh, attacking infantry. It guides them to where you want them to be. Um, and it, it means that the defending troops have got ample opportunity to pour in rapid rifle and machine gun fire from relative safety being in their own trenches. I think that's not the real difference, though, from, 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 uh, from previous conflicts. Uh, uh, I think the real difference would be the modern, the massed modern artillery. Would you agree? Yeah, and we, we've talked about the killing machine that artillery was during the Great War on numerous occasions. Now, people often say, doesn't the artillery mean that that, that, that could sweep away the barbed wire, sweep away the trenches, you know, the shrapnel and the high explosives? Uh, does, well, why, why, isn't it, why can't artillery just get rid of these things? Well, it might have been able to do that if only one side had artillery, but both sides have artillery. And if the defending batteries had not been knocked out of action, then they'd let loose a devastating fire of their own on the attacking infantry. And there is a problem because we haven't got much heavy and medium artillery, and it's difficult to hit the opposing artillery without long-range guns because they aim at your front line, so they're further back. It's quite interesting. Now, uh, there's another problem about, uh, about trench warfare. It's not just one trench. We discussed this in our 1915 talks. Uh, there's the support and reserve lines. Uh, that, so even if you get through the front line, you've got them to face. So it's very difficult, a la Nerve Chapelle and Luce and other battles, to if even if you break through the front line or into the front line, you haven't broken through, have you? Uh, it, no, and we've mentioned on a number of occasions, what do the Germans always do? They Always counterattack. They're buckers for that counterattacking. They they can't stop themselves, can they? Which is <laughs> no, now, nor can we, unfortunately. No. Um, now, so 1915, uh, the end of 1915, the Germans they they're controlling an important, uh, economically important, and strategically important great chunk of France and Belgium. Or tranche. Or tranche. Oh, that's a posh word, Gary. French, uh, I think. There you are, so sophisticated. Um, do, does it come from the Latin, or does it is it sort of natural French? No, I think it's natural French. <laughs> There's nothing unnatural about the French. <laughs> Right, uh, so they can't allow this situation to continue. So the, the, the French and the British have got to drive them out. Um, but how to launch an offensive? And this is all leading up to the planning for the Somme. This, believe it or not, this is all directly involved. So, so how can you do it? What are the different ways of doing it? What are the different theories? I mean, what, what's one thing? There? Well, the primary uh, question is, do you have a hurricane bombardment or do you have a long bombardment to wear down and destroy the defences? Ooh, hurricane bombardment. Hurricane bombardment means a lot of guns 
to, to, to create the huge impact and a lot of shells. Uh, ooh, that's interesting. And then there's wide front attacks versus narrow concentrated attacks. Wide front needs a lot of artillery and a lot of shells. Uh, narrow front Concentrated attacks means they can fire into you from either side and it's easily blocked. So these things are difficult. And then there's uh, uh, the, 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 your... Uh, the one well, yeah, I about. mean, uh, bite and hold is often discussed in, in relation to not only Rawlinson, but also the Somme and other battles. Bite and hold. Grab a small piece of the opposing front and then hold it against counterattacks. Now, uh, so so th- uh, that that would prove not to be the solution, by the way, of the thing, but uh, the all-hours battle would be. But it's it's an interesting concept. Well, also, that, as we've mentioned in our 1915 podcast, at that particular point in time, they weren't possible anyway. Uh, even bite and hold, there's just not enough artillery, really. Uh, there's a lack of guns and ammunition to, to get this level of bombardment they wanted. They're coming online in 16, but there's still a problem with um, with quality of the ammunition. Because uh, you're, you're in contracts, if you contract contract out lots and lots of things very quickly you get a lower standard which with artillery makes a, a big difference now um so are the germans standing still or are they are they changing their defensive tactics no i mean you've mentioned this before and, and you use this analogy of the big dipper they the, the germans were were refining their defensive tactics and and you know arguably were mutating wow. to uh, to counter the uh, the uh, the offensive tactics and developments that the allies. Were so making. this is a double big dipper the effect. You're up on they're down, they're down, you're up. That kind of thing. Now, uh, Haig, who's taken over in December of 1915 from Sir John French, sums up his policy in his diary, and it's interesting that the the, the, the date because people say some nonsense about what Haig was trying to do on the soil. But what does he say when he first took over? This is uh, General Sir Douglas Haig. The principles which we must apply are employ sufficient force to wear down the enemy and cause him to use up his reserves to then and not till then throw in a mass of troops at some point where the enemy has shown himself to be weak to break through and win victory. Now, that in some ways is a statement of the bleeding obvious, and I accept that. But on the other hand, it is a succinct statement of what they had to do. Uh, This is... uh, this is going to be a bit of a painful process, given the strength of the German army, wouldn't you say? Um, there's going to be a lot of casualties. Uh, yeah, and, and uh, you know, arguably, we've got to just grit our teeth and get on with it. Now, by the time Haig took over command of the BEF, it's it's got to it's it's a lot. It's a continental army. It's thirty-eight infantry divisions. I mean, it's increasing all the time. Uh, nearly a million men. Although it's interesting, the Italians went to war in June 1915 with 35 divisions. So it's just worth bearing that in mind. Nevertheless, uh, the massive recruitment programs are paying dividend of 1914 and 1915. Yeah, and also the people of the empire also putting their shoulder to the Never war. Never to be forgotten. No, you've got the Indians, Australians, New Zealanders, and Canadians who all flocked to the colours. So they're all so this is the British Empire. It's not the British, it's the British Empire. Um also at home the the the, the there's I mean mobilization of resources isn't just men, is it? It's it's the engineering and manufacturing industries, the scientific uh, input. And they've been fully mobilized onto a war footing. Perhaps not as efficient as they would be in say 16 and 7 late 16, 17 and on into 18, but they are beginning to churn out guns and munitions. Uh, yeah, you're starting 
going to get the the numbers in unprecedented quantities, frankly, that you are going to need for trench warfare. Now, how do you think the French think about this? Well, from a French perspective, it's two years late, isn't it, Pete? The the British have finally managed to mobilise a force commensurate in size with uh, the inherent potential of the massive British Empire. Now, was Haig the master of his own destiny, do you think? Or, or, or is he under, under the cosh in, in some way that you might like to discuss? No, I, I mean, Britain was very much the junior partner in this uh, alliance. And uh, uh, the Minister of War, Lord Kitchener, had specifically ordered Haig to cooperate with the French army as a united army, while at the same time maintaining his independence of command. I'm not quite sure what that means. Uh, no, um, so he's got yes, he's got to do what he's told. Essentially, what does Haig say about this? Well, General Douglas Haig says, "I am not under General Joffre's orders, but that would make no difference, as my intention was to do my utmost to carry out General Joffre's wishes on strategical matters, as if they were orders." Now, strategic, yes, not tactical. Uh, that's interesting. It's a, it's a balancing act, isn't it? Uh, uh, the French army are still the dominant force on the Western Front throughout, well, almost you could say throughout the war, but certainly in 1916. And and the much of the overall strategy is going to be decided by the French commander-in-chief, which is uh, Joseph Joff, uh, General uh, Joseph Joff. Now, he was, uh, he was a popular man in France for, for a while, anyway, after the his great victory at the Marne, which I attribute, and many others do, to to his sense of purpose and 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 uh, and, and willingness to fight on and de- determine the issue, um, but the the campaigns in fifteen had not been successful. The French had had huge casualties in fifteen, and and it's taken a bit of a, sh- sh- a bit of the luster from his reputation, hasn't it? I mean, he's not shining out like a beacon of light, as you would put it. Now, this is the man that Haig has to forge an effective working relationship with, from a, p- a position of um, de facto inferiority uh yeah that's right and uh, and Haig does form a relationship with him i mean as usual with Haig, i mean if you if you're in any big if you're in a stressful position you're gonna in your diary you're gonna oh, i hate him i hate him and i everything he stands for but they did form a relationship uh in reality as opposed to occasional spiteful remarks in diaries i better not show you my diary yeah dear diary pete is a complete <laughs> bastard i hate him I've seen it. Janet showed it me. Anyway, um, so, because you've got to remember, effective liaison, you know, the stresses, the strains of war, there's the fallible communication lines. They're not in, communication isn't like now where, where you can get in touch with people in many ways. Um, different officers, uh, officers have different sort of social skills, different backgrounds. Uh, so both sides need to have a bit of tolerance, don't they? I mean, the French have to be tolerant of the British I- idiosyncrasies. Oh, I said it right. I thought, as I went into it, I thought, I'm not sure I'm going to say that. <laughs> uh, anyway, now, uh, one pro- problem for Haig is is that the the basic programme's already been decided uh, for 1916. And this is Brigadier General John Charteris. Uh, who's at GHQ of the BEF, he says, the general lines of the grand strategy for this oncoming year have already been settled between Joff and Sir John French, a combined and practically simultaneous offensive on the Russian, Italian and this front. 
Kitchener is doubtful whether France will stand more than another year of war and thinks unless we win this year, the war will end in stalemate with another war in the near future and therefore urges that we must force the issue this year. Much depends upon what reserve of fighting power the French still have. They have borne the brunt so far, but they cannot go on forever. <sighs> the ne- this... This next year, the big effort must be ours. Whoa. That's quite quite something, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it's not surprising, is it, really, that the French, who've suffered really terribly in the first two years of the war, are uh, insisting that the British should finally begin to pull their weight in to 1916. Properly, properly pull their weight. Yeah, it's yeah. not surprising at all. Now, Joffre had, had decided that the main attack that summer should be where the two armies are next to each other. Now, that, they're, they're next to each other either side of the River Somme in Picardy. Picardy. And uh, that would be in the summer of 1916. And General Joseph Joff, GHQ French Army, says this. The French offensive would be greatly aided by a simultaneous offensive of the British forces between the Somme and Arras. Besides the interest which this last area presents on account of its close proximity to that where the effort of the French armies will be made, I think that it will be a considerable advantage to attack the enemy on a front where for long months the reciprocal activity of the troops opposed to each other has been less than elsewhere. The ground is, besides, in many places favourable to the deployment of a powerful offensive. So we're, we're talking a, a combined Franco-British attack of fronts, wow, 50 to 60 miles wide. Um, so the French will attack south of the Somme and the British would attack north of the Somme. It, it's ambitious, isn't it? Yeah, it's hugely ambitious. Now, was Joffre telling the truth about why it should be there or does he have another reason? Well, his real reason for proposing a joint offensive carried out side by side was to prevent postponements and other backsliding from the British. He the didn't British trust us. backsliding? He didn't trust us, no. Hmm. Yeah. Now, uh, the, the Somme is not the British choice of where to attack, is it? Uh, Haig, where does Haig want to attack? Well, he favours an offensive in Flanders because the, the, the Somme doesn't deliver any tangible strategic rewards. Um, whereas he thought in Flanders uh, he could attain the strategic objective of clearing the Belgian coast. And there's a rule as rail, uh, rail communication behind the uh, German lines. So there's lots of reasons for attacking there. Uh, does, does Haig have a choice but to fall in? No, let's not forget he's newly promoted and he's got very, very little choice but to fall in with Joffre's plan for the sake of the alliance. We'll go back to you know his instructions from Kitchener. So... Uh, you know, only unity of purpose amongst the Allies could ever defeat the Germans. Unity of purpose. That's what we've got, Gary. Yes. Right. Uh, now, there was quite a lot of debate uh, about the preparatory operations. Now, they're, they're meant to have two major preparatory operations, which were to grind down the Germans a bit. Uh, and and the Briti- uh, Joff wants the British to launch two of these uh uh, before the main thrust, if you like. Now, how does Haig react to this, remembering what we said before? Well, he's only willing to launch one offensive. Uh, and, you know, the negotiations were at times a little fraught, I think mm. we can describe them, because he's not willing to accept tactical as opposed to strategical direction from Joffre. He made that clear. Yeah, he, he would accept it if it was strategic. So the debate soon 
renders itself I I irrelevant. Just, I was just wondering because uh, I don't remember this offensive. No, because <laughs> events overtake them. You know, we've said it before, but it's often forgotten that there are two sides striving to win the war on the Western Front and that the Germans too were more than capable of making and carrying out their own plans, Pete. So who's in charge of the Germans? Well, the Germans are led by General Erich von Falkenheim, who was the chief of the German general staff. Now, we talked about him before, Pete. He's an interesting figure. Uh, he polarises opinions both then and now. Um, you know, you can see the differences expressed by Jack Sheldon in fighting on the Somme, as well as Robert Foley in Eric von Falkenhayn and the development of attrition, 1870 to 1916. Now, both of those books are cracking books. And this is part of the interest of history. Those two people are brilliant historians. They've got different views on Falkenhayn. I don't think either of them are right or wrong. I think both of them are interesting and need a lot of thought as to what before you make rash statements. Uh, um, that 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 that's it's it, it's very interesting. Overall, what's Pat Falkenhayn think about the German position? Well, he's he's somewhat pessimistic, Pete. He he thinks that the uh, the German strategic uh, position um, they're buggered. They're buggered, yeah. I mean, he realises that the Hindenburg-Ludenburg policy of attacking Russia in 1915 was futile. This is the business of the Russians have too many men and it's too big. Yeah. So, so you, you can't knock them out, Allah. You just can't. No. So in 1916, he seeks to concentrate on the Western Front to knock out the French once and for all. Um, now, that's designed to capitalise on the something like 1.4 million casualties already inflicted on the French nation and attempt to finally knock her out of the war. Now, the Germans at this time, Pete, have around 117 divisions on so the how Western So how many of them could are holding the line and how many could be spared? Well, to, uh, he, he thought that around 25 could be risked in, a, uh, in an offensive. Now, so where's he going to attack them? What's his objective? What's going on? Well, he takes considerable care about uh, where he, uh, he, he will launch this attack. And uh, he, he launches a stunning assault on the fortress of Verdun on the 21st of February 1916. Ah, so hence why uh, no uh, no preparatory attacks. Hence no preparatory attacks. Now, so why Verdun? Well, he he he's picked Verdun because it's a potent combination of both national pride and military necessity, which would make it almost impossible for the French to do anything other than fight to the death. Now, so uh, the the, the uh, it, this is often described. Uh, and it's a simplified version. The, the German concept was to suck in the flower of French manhood <laughs> and bleed them dry in a, in a sort of mincing machine is the usual expression. And uh, it's time-honoured that you refer to it as a, a mincing machine, isn't it? Um, and th that would be established by the massed power of the German artillery, which, which sort of churned through the... The the the, uh, the the Germans uh, and and just just the, but it, it doesn't work like that, does it? No, I mean he's right in that it sucks the French in, but he also allows the Germans to be sucked in as well, and it ends up that both sides get minced. If you'll pardon the it expression, it becomes a bit of an obsession to him, doesn't it? It does, which is what he thought it would be for the French. Now, uh, in doing so, and this is the point Jack Sheldon particularly makes, uh, he neglects the German Second Army, which is uh, holding the Somme area. Now, they're saying, I think the British are going to attack. I think the British are going to attack. And what does Falkenhayn do? 
Well, nothing. He, he's doing nothing. The local German commanders are telling him what's coming. They, they, as you rightly say, but he refuses to take any notice at all. To him, the real Schwerpunkt, now, the centre oh. of gravity. Oh, Pete, your German is so good. Or crucial point was Verdun. Now, as you say, Jack Sheldon characterised this as sleepwalking to near disaster, and that's with really good reason. I, I, I think he's right about this. I think Falkenhayn, um, he could it, the the battle doesn't work out as he planned, but he doesn't. He's not flexible about about that, uh, and and I think that's uh, that's grounds for criticism. I like Falkenhayn. Well, likes the wrong word for somewhat. Uh, unpleasant character but he, he, he as a general I think he's pretty good but this is not his finest hour uh, the French army they've suffered so much in 15 what's Verdun like for them is it uh, it's, a, it's murder isn't it it's, it is and it's an extreme troll he, he, I can't say this often enough Falkenhayn is right you know the, the French uh, commit most of their available reserves to the battle they have to they have to. It's become apparent that it would be grossly unrealistic for the French to play their originally intended lead role in the joint offensive of the Somme. Uh, and, and you could argue that the strain was such that Joffre came to see the Somme offensive less as a part of the main Allied assault on Germany and more as a way of relieving the, pr- the pressure that was piling on, on at Verdun. So they're still going to take part, but they'd scaled down. And the British are now the leading uh, contrib- contribution in the Battle of the Somme. Yeah, I mean, they still they still uh, have around 200,000 casualties, the French. Let's not, you know, let's not, let's be clear here. They're not completely uninvolved. They're involved, but not to the scale as intended. Now, uh, th- there's a debate about when the Somme exactly should be launched. Uh, now, what, what Haig is very cautious about this. It, uh, what does he think his art? What, what does he think of the state of the BEF in the spring uh, of 1916, spring and early summer? What does he say? Um, General Sir Douglas Haig, I have not got an army in France, really, but a collection of divisions untrained for the field. The actual fighting army will be evolved from them. If they get the chance, if they get the chance to hone the fighting skills. But the Germans are smashing into the French at Verdun and the French are getting more and more desperate. And there's a meeting at 26th of May at Montreal, that's uh, Haig's headquarters, to finalise the date of the the Somme offensive. And Joff is putting a real case for, for urgent British action. This is not something that you can ignore. Um, if the alliance is... To, what did we say? You've got to have joint sense of purpose. You've got to work together. You've got to stick together. And Haig's backed into a corner. He can't escape. What does Haig say? General Joffre explained the general situation. The French had supported for three months alone the whole weight of the German attacks at Verdun. If this went on, the French army would be ruined. He therefore was of opinion that 1st of July was the latest date for the combined offensive of the British and French. I said that before fixing the date, I would like to indicate the state of preparedness of the British army on certain dates and compare its condition. I took the 1st and 15th of July and 1st and 15th of August. The moment I mentioned 15th of August, Joffre at once got very excited and shouted that the French army would cease to exist if we did nothing till then. 
The rest of us looked on at this outburst of excitement, and then I pointed out that, in spite of the 15th of August being the most favourable date for the British Army to take action, yet in view of what he had said regarding the unfortunate condition of the French Army, I was prepared to commence operations on the 1st of July or thereabouts. Which is six weeks earlier. And that's and, it, and my maths has for once stood up to the strain. But that that's uh, six weeks is a long time. Uh, what's what's basic training? Six weeks. It makes a difference to the, the the preparation of your units for war. Now, what are Haig's intentions when he's you know he's, he's going to launch the Battle of the Somme? He's going to be the main partner in this, although he's under direction. Um, in essence, he's tra- he thinks he could get. He hopes. The, the thing is, he hopes to get victory in 1916, but he's aware that it might prove impossible. What does he say? My policy is briefly to, one, train my divisions and to collect as much ammunition, as many guns as possible. Two, to make arrangements to support the French attacking in order to draw off pressure from Verdun when the French consider the military situation demands it, but while attacking to help our allies, not to think that we can for a certainty destroy the power of Germany this year. So in our attacks, we must also aim at improving our positions with a view to making sure of the result of campaign next year. Yeah, and that's interesting because this is all this talk about him being absolutely... There is a conditional element in in what he's thinking. He's not thinking they're definitely going to break through. But in a sense, this is it, the dice cast. And they're going to fight their first real continental uh, battle, isn't it? This isn't like loose. This, well, you know, it's a couple of core. This is is going to be a big bloody battle. Um, And they're going to be part of the continental alliance. Uh, They're fighting to relieve pressure on the French. And it's part of the continuing effort to destroy the main strength of the German army prior to launching the decisive attack. So in many ways, the Somme is not the decisive attack. It's it's the preparations for it. may be the decisive attack if it works out that way, but they're not sure. It might not be. So, you know. Um, now, let's talk about, we said we've got to do both sides. What are the German defences like? Uh, um, uh, what's the ground like? What's, what's, it, what's it like? Well, we've, we've both visited the area. The Somme was originally a green and pleasant land. You know, the, the rolling down and chalk ridges, liberally dotted with small villages, farms and woods. Now, the Germans looked on this unspoilt rural scene with a sole intention of eking out every defensive advantage they could squeeze from the configuration of the land. So they're, go- they're just using everything, everything they can. Yeah, now they've roughly sketched out their front in the hectic, yeah. hectic days of 1914. Along the ridge. Along the ridge. Then the Germans, being the Germans, set about <laughs> digging themselves in properly. They were there for the duration. This is the point. There's, they're, 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 they've got time to prepare their defences. So the German front line crosses the Somme and runs along the forward slopes of the, of the ridge. Uh, if you don't know the Somme, there's no point in knowing anything other than that there's a sort of ridge. And it bend, bending round to follow their contour lines of the minor valleys that then run down towards the main rivers. Now, this is interesting because, of course, that gives a, a natural killing ground because you're going to be able to fire machine guns in it uh, from, the, from the pointy bits of the line, if you like. <laughs> 
the sticky out bits, the salience, you'll be able to fire across the, the land in between. Very interesting. Um, when we call this the front line, do I mean the front line? What do I mean, Gary? No, it's a bit of a misnomer because it was fully realised trench system. It consisted of itself three lines about 200 yards apart all linked together by communication trenches and incorporating fortress villages. So they're making the villages, those lovely little villages or farms, they're making them into fortresses, uh, proper fortresses, reinforced concrete. D d right, yeah, brilliant. Now, uh, was that so that's it? There's three, no, three trench lines? No, there's a second line defensive system that's also been constructed, and that's about 2,000 to 5,000 yards, depending on the local tactical Where configuration the of the ground, behind the first line. Oh, good almighty. Well, that's it, though. There can't be anything else, can there? Finally, oh. the Germans had made considerable progress on digging a third line system, which was about a further 3,000 yards back. Now, these are state-of-the-art defence systems, aren't they? Um, let, let's let look at the way they are. So the trenches themselves are well-constructed, uh, revetted. They've got plentiful provision for deep dugouts, multiple exits. Why multiple exits so important to a dugout, Gary? Well, so that there's not one way in, one way out that can be blocked, Pete. Absolutely. Uh, 40 foot deep and more, because I, I think they're, they're some of the deep. And they could accommodate in sort of relative comfort it must have been bloody awful down there actually but that the whole of the trench garrison for the area uh, anything in front of the front lines well, or in between the lines we mentioned it earlier two belts of tangled barbed wire which were up to 30 yards wide so this isn't the old single strand this is a mass barbed wire yeah now we talked about the villages how how are they fortified them well uh, reinforced concrete and uh, you, you've got cellars and they join them together to, to with tunnels and things to, to so like an underground warren, like a rabbit warren. Yeah, Those Germans, <laughs> cunning devils, you know. Um, now they're also incorporated in the front line or just behind it, trench-based strong points or, or redoubts. Um, they're independent fortresses, almost in their own right. This is in addition to everything else. Uh, these redoubts, like Schwab and Redoubt, they really, really matter. Um, now, where's the German uh, Second Army identified uh, as the as, as their own particular tactical Schwerpunkt? Oh, I can't say as well as Schwerpunkt. Schwerpunkt. Yeah, the, it's the high ground between Serre and Ovillers. That that's the sh uh, and that's where the Schwaben Redoubt is. That's where that's there. That, that's that's the the. the the key to the situation. And funny enough, later on, French Sir John, not Sir John French. The French, Joff, recognises this as well. Uh, Haig sadly doesn't. It's uh, probably his greatest ever mistake. So this is, it's like a citadel. This is what, they, you know, if you, it's like Badajoz from the, <laughs> the, from the Peninsula War. They've got to break into this, except it's 25 miles long. So uh, how are the British going to plan tactically? Um, so despite the failure of the loot, Haig's retained faith in uh, General Sir Henry Rawlinson, and he'd also been impressed by the, Vigor shown by General Sir Herbert Hubert. I always get that wrong. In fact, I got it wrong in a book once. Hubert Goth. It's not like you get things wrong in books. <laughs> 1915, 1916, they're all the same to me, mate. Uh, so he points Rawlinson to command the new Fourth Army. Uh, they're going to conduct the initial stage of the offensive. And then Goth 
is going to uh, command the reserve army. Later on, they call it the fifth army. Uh, and uh, they, they would be, he would energetically exploit if there was a breakthrough, which they anticipated there might be or would be. It depends on which way you look at it. Um, now, uh, so he's appointed, uh, Rawlinson's appointed to command 4th Army on 1st of March 1916. And uh, his plans pass through a load of versions and it's highly complicated. So I urge you to read one of the books on the Somme if you want to know more. But we'll sketch out the problems. So give me some examples of the, 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 the things he had to... Uh, what, what are his problems? Well, this is incredibly simplified, but uh, the first problems, where exactly to attack... Yeah. What length and type of bombardment to use? We that. mentioned that earlier. Yep. How far was uh, the attempt to go in the first so, phase? Ooh, yes, I see the point. What delay, therefore, before the second phase? And ooh. whether he was going to attempt any kind of a breakthrough or merely secure the Somme ridges by use of the uh, aforementioned bite and hold So tactics. the first and second ridges, where the German first and second trench systems are. Now, Rawlinson tours the lines, he examines uh, the aerial photographs, because you can't see the second trench system from our front line, except from aerial photographs. Rawlinson goes for a, a bite and hold approach. He'll try and take the first system on the first day, uh, and then and then uh, and then have a pause and then attempt the second phase. Second phase. He puts this to Hague on the third of April, nineteen sixteen, and it's it's soundly rooted in the lessons he he'd learned from things like Nerve Chapelle, where he'd actually put the whole policy of bite and hold. He'd, he'd said it was a good idea. Um, now. Um, so this is what. So now, in trying to take the first, what's what? What advantage do the British have in trying to take the first trench system? Yeah, bearing in mind that it's the first line system. Yep. It's under observation because uh, the British can see it because it's lying on the forward slopes of the ridge, so you can right. see it. Uh, but the second line system, yes, isn't. That's what we've made. That, that well, it is, but only to aerial observation. So. Uh, uh, Rawlinson proposes an advance on a front uh, 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 just 2,000 yards. This is Biden Hole. Seize the German frontline system from Serre to Maricor. If you look at a map, you'll see it. Then, after a suitable gap to allow the guns to move forward, this is a range business. They can't reach the second line because it's two to 5,000 second trench line system. Uh, it, they've got they've got to move the field artillery forward and register their targets. They'd have another bite of about a thousand yards, which would be which would take a section of the German second line system from Serre to via Pozieres to Contalmaison before rolling up the line to the south. Well, yeah, we'll see how that goes. The, but in spirit, this is bite and hold, isn't it? Yeah, it is. But and as to the bombardment, he he tended to the hurricane bombardment theory. Uh, but he also felt that he had too few guns. For well, it's, such. A, it's a very wide front. Yeah, he, he didn't think he had enough guns for the, the front to guarantee cutting the wire and smashing the German front line. And what happens if you don't cut the wire and smash the front line? Think of Arbor's Ridge, think of Festival. You're not going anywhere, are you? You no. just fall apart in no man's land. Uh, why didn't he use gas, do you think? Well, I think you mentioned he'd learnt lessons from Luce. I think he was he was undoubtedly chastened by his experiences of Luce, where you know the the vagaries of the wind, shall we say, uh, 
meant that, that actually it wasn't an effective weapon in that case. He's going to try and use smoke screens, so he tried to, to the effort. He's going to try and use it to try and screen across no man's land. Now, uh, what does Haig think? What does Haig think when he gets this? Well, typically he thinks that uh, they're nowhere near bold enough, and uh, he actually says this: "I studied Sir Henry Rawlinson's proposals for attack. His intention is merely to take the enemy's first and second system of trenches and kill Germans." He looks upon the gaining of three or four kilometres more or less of ground immaterial. I think we can do better than this by aiming at getting as large a combined force of French and British across the Somme and fighting the enemy in the open. Now, Haig proposed... Now, this is controversial, and people may argue with details of this, but this is a podcast. This isn't an academic thesis. Haig argues that the first step should be more ambitious and incorporate objectives all along the German second-line system from Serre via Pazier's right down to uh, the ridge in front, you know, facing uh, the Maricor. Um, Haig wants a hurricane, a short hurricane bombardment to provide an element of surprise. This, his idea is to allow them to rush forward and overrun the German defenders in the first and second line systems before they know what's happening. That you know, this is funny enough. This reminds me of 1918 tactics, but it's too early for artillery. But then mind. What he fears is that caution might lead to missed opportunities. Think of Nerve Chappelle again. Uh, That's the trouble. You learn lessons from things. Sometimes you get it wrong. Um, If the Germans are showing the signs of collapse, if you're not ready, then they'll get away with it. Um, He also proposes a diversionary attack. This is sad, really, at Gomacor. It's a bit north. It's a a salient further to the north. to try and get, well, he's trying to get some tactical surprise. Uh, it, it, it eventually turns into a simultaneous attack. It's meant to be a diversionary attack. It's meant to be obvious. It just leads to a slaughter. It is not a good idea. It's carried out by a third army under General Sir Edmund Allenby, the old cavalry corps uh, leader. Now, this isn't bite and hold, is it? No. This, this is an attempt at an outright breakthrough, Pete. I think he's been seduced by the power of massed artillery that, in a sense, has been demonstrated by the Germans at Verdun. But the British aren't ready for it. They haven't got enough medium and heavy artillery. They, they, they haven't got. They haven't got the the, the the They aren't. They aren't ready. Have we got enough guns to carry out a devastating bombardment on a on a front that stretches? Well, I never know how long. Twenty five thousand yards. I'm not. I'm not quite sure. The length no, I mean the 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 guns they managed to amass worked out at one field gun to every twenty yards of front and one heavy gun to every 58 yards of front. Uh, hang on a minute. What was it at Nerve Chappelle? Yeah, to, if you contrast it with Nerve Chappelle, it was one gun per six yards of trench, which uh, they achieved at Nerve Chappelle. Uh, hang on, but that's six yards, but that's just one line or one and a half lines, if you're generous. But at the sum, it's three lines plus another three lines plus redoubts. Plus yeah, this the, is, the, this the is trenches not en- are much different to This Nerve is not Chappelle. enough, is it? No. It's not enough. The trenches, uh, you've got barbed wire, as we've mentioned. Uh, you've got several lines, well-constructed trenches and strong points. And uh, you've got much more numerous German gun batteries. They frankly have got better observation from the Somme regions. Although we do have uh, air control. that that is So we have got that. Um, do, do, do they have enough heavy guns to reach the second line system? 
Well, um, say, I don't think they have, have they? No, clearly not. And as we mentioned earlier, you can't even see the second line. Well, if field artillery can't reach it. It's got to. I mean, that's why uh, Rawlinson wanted to move his uh, guns forward in the second phase. And that's why, you know, again in earlier podcasts, we said the importance of. Uh, uh, owning the skies, for want of a better word, so you can get that observation. So by including it in the first day objectives, it also has to be included in the prior bombardment, in the, the preliminary bombardment, doesn't it? Yeah. Uh, is the number of artillery increased? No, it's not. And, and it's plain that every shell that you fire into the second line trenches uh, and the wire that's barring their way was one less shell fired at the German first line. Which, after all, they've got to take before they can get to the second line. So that, yeah. Um, what does Rawlinson think? Well, he, he's privately still convinced that slow and steady, for want of a better word, was best. Although he's brave enough to restate his objections. Ultimately, <laughs> he cowtails he, he to Hague's request for a redraft. Well, Hague's plan. got it. Uh, he's got the wood on him, if you like. Uh, an unfortunate expression view. At least three meanings I can think of, because. Uh, uh, Rawlinson had lied about something at Nerve Chappelle, and he, Haig's still slightly holding um, that on him. This is what Lieutenant General Sir Henry Rawlinson, who's now commanding Fourth Army, says. It still seems to me that an attempt to gain more distant objectives, that is to say the enemy's second-line system, involves considerable risks. I, however, fully realise that it may be necessary to incur these risks in view of the importance of the objective to be attained. This will, no doubt, be decided by the Commander-in-Chief and definite instructions be sent to me in due course. Now, in a sense, I mean, the point is that if, if you just because something's worthwhile doesn't make it... If you take risks, it doesn't make it any more likely you'll do it. it, 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 it mm. Anyway, um, now, Rawlinson does, does win one point, though. Yeah, What's he wins that? the argument over the length of the, the preliminary bombardment, put my teeth in. Um, and uh, further, Rawlinson's instructions to attempt the German second-line position are finally confirmed in writing on the 16th of May. That's from Haig, yeah. Oh, right. So the fatal decision has, has been taken. Now, um, uh, he, he is at the same time told that he's going. if he secures a breakthrough, in fact, it's expected he might or will, General Goff would have two uh, corps of the Reserve Army to exploit it, either under command of Rawlinson or, or independently under his own command, you know, as the Reserve Army. It, it's, you know. Now, throughout the planning process, Haig is watching Rawlinson, isn't he? Why? Well, he, he doesn't relax the pressure on him. He's, he's looking really closely for signs of backsliding into an easy acceptance of a more limited objective. Haig is determined that they've got to be ready to, 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 to exploit a major breakthrough. Part of this is because if you mobilise the entire strength of the British Empire for an offensive, are you really only going to aim in the whole of the year's campaign for gaining a couple of thousand yards? And what I, I know he's wrong because he's proved to be wrong, but I understand what's going on. But I do think Haig is wrong. Um, bite and hold is not the solution to uh, warfare on the Western Front, but it, it probably is a, would have been a better method, a, a less disastrous method uh, in 1916. Um I would make the point, however, that uh, much that in a sense, it's only this artillery change because that you know less artillery being concentrated on the first line. Um, 
the dogs farted again before leaving. Uh, so, so, so there we have. Um, um, it, 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 it's a complicated thing. It's not Hague. I don't think Hague's in the right here, but there you go. Um, I also understand what's going on. Now, Hager wants to use cavalry. Well, why? And it's often satirised. Well, he wants to, he wants to use it as a, a method of, if they do break through. Um, what's important about cavalry? Well, it's his only means of rapid exploitation and pursuit in 1916. What's the alternative? What, the, the, what, what the, else are you going to do? Well, there's nothing. And people talk about tanks. Even in 1918, whippets aren't that fast. No. Uh, there, there is nothing. If you want to move quickly to exploit a breakthrough, that's all you've got. Now, uh, hey, you, you, you've got a, a quote about this from, uh, from Haig. What is it? I told him to impress on his corps commanders the use of their corps cavalry and mounted troops, and if necessary, supplement them with regular cavalry units. In my opinion, it is better to prepare to advance beyond the enemy's last line of trenches, because we are then in a position to take advantage of any breakdown in the enemy's defence. Whereas, if there is a stubborn resistance put up, the matter settles itself. On the other hand, if no preparations for an advance are made till next morning, we might lose a golden opportunity. So, what it is, is it's entirely sensible. If you break through, he wants the cavalry ready to do whatever they can. It, it, um, um, uh, he, he's ensuring that the 4th Army and the Reserve Army, if you, if you follow, they're, they're ready for different degrees of success or failure. Uh, they've got to plan for a possible breakthrough, but he does allow explicitly in that quote for a slower rate of progress or no progress. Uh, and there's that process, cavalry are to be held ready. Uh, th- th- there's nothing else. Uh, what, what would you call this as a, as a modern person, as a, as, a, as, a, as a senior management? What would you call this, what Haig's doing? He wouldn't have called it, but what no, would you it, call it? You would call it scenario planning. So different alternatives getting ready, being ready for any eventuality. Uh, it's not a bad thing. We're, so we're, 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 we're being ambivalent about Hagen wants us. He, he was too optimistic, but he does plan for the, the, the rest of it. I, I think warfare, it's not the sort of art form, the sort of general, you know, the great general sat in his tent thinking and coming up with some genius scheme. What is it, what is it more now? It's more calculate. It seems more... Yeah, it's it's more a case of calculation and and science and available resources. So, it, so what resources? That's manpower. Manpower is critical. Available munitions. The right sort. The right. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, what about something else? Yeah, this this all uh, please our friend Mr. Thompson. The logistical infrastructure that's got to supply and move units in the field. That's crucial. And uh, what our next podcast on the Somme will be on planning for infantry, artillery and logistics with a proper section. But artillery, that is going to be crucial. It's the weight of shells delivered per yard of front. That's going to be crucial. Now, as the battle approaches, uh, is everything uh, hunky-dory with the French, do you think? No, the British are starting to tire because the uh, the French are, are chopping and changing their plans and commitments on the Somme. Oh, Not surprising. Oh, oh, don't blame them. <laughs> They're up to their neck in Verdun, aren't they? They are, and dismissive remarks are, are frequently found in letters and diaries from men who could have had no conce- uh, conception of the nature of the fighting at Verdun. 
but they're going to soon learn for themselves just how bad it could be. Yeah, it's going to be it's going to be pretty bad. Now this is Brigadier Archibald Home, uh, and he's at headquarters of Forty Sixth Division. And this this sort of sums up it it it's it's the 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 backbiting that goes on. Loyal allies, but backbiting. What does what does Home say? I wonder what the French are playing at. From the little I hear, I think they're at their old game. They do not want us to pull the chestnuts out of the fire. They growl when we do not attack and growl still more when they think we're going to be successful. They may be exaggerated, but certainly the date was put forward to please them and now it's delayed again. That's because the French, are, uh, uh, they're having problems. It's only the, the delay was caused by bad weather and, and they weren't able to fly, but, but yeah, people blame the French. Uh, so what's the state of play for Haig? Well... He he was he had reservations about the state of training of his troops, didn't he? He was he wanted August the fifteenth. It was six weeks earlier. Uh, where would have it's not where he wanted. Where would he want to be? He's got a personal me? preference. We mentioned it. He mentioned it often. He, he would have preferred an offensive in uh, in Flanders. Um, the French aren't going to be able to play. They are playing a part in the offensive, but not the leading role that had been planned. But uh, so what's Haig doing? Just sum it up. Right. He is risking his army for the greater good of the alliance. And let's be clear, in which the British are, the, are most definitely the junior partner, the Anglo-French alliance, which offered the only feasible way of winning the war. So Haig has no choice. Uh, the Somme is forced upon us. He, the planning process was complex but they, they were doing their better. I, I, I'd sum it up as, ready or not, the British are coming. Uh, they wonder are. What's, wonder what's going to happen. Right, well, uh, thanks a lot, Gary, for, uh, for, for, for this. I, I've really enjoyed chatting about it. I think it's important. Uh, you may have noticed there's a lack of uh, humour, perhaps, well, except for Fred Farty in this, but this is a serious business because the, the decisions we're talking about would impact, and when I say impact, end the lives of nearly 20,000 men on the first day. And of course, the Somme is not a one-day offensive, is it? No, and that's the point, Peter. We're going to do a series because we want to, we will, of course, talk about the events of the 1st of July. Of course. But the Somme is so much more than the first day. And it's not all doom and, well, it is all doom and gloom, but it's not all bad for the British. The British make enormous strides. Uh, and, of course, the French are there fighting hard, as you said, over 200,000 casualties. Uh, we're, we're looking forward to covering the whole battle, and uh, we'll, we'd be delighted to know what you think. If you like the podcast, don't forget to review on the, any your favourite podcast uh, supplier, whatever that may be. There's usually a review section. We really like five-star reviews. Cheers, Gary. Cheers, Pete. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Thanks for listening. 
Follow us on Twitter and Facebook to learn more about each episode. And if you'd like to support the podcast, you have a couple of options. You can buy us a coffee at buymeacoffee forward slash PGMH or consider subscribing to the podcast for only £2 per month and get ad-free listening and bonus content. You can find links for both on our Facebook and Twitter accounts. Sounds great, doesn't it?